Well, obviously, we're starting a little bit early when it comes to the message this morning, and that is all right. We're going to have an opportunity to continue our vocal worship at the end of the service, so don't you worry. We've got a lot more planned, but I do hope that you'll grab your Bibles, if you will, and go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we're going to be today as we finish out our series called Return, Rebuild, Renew. And if you've been with us over the course of the summer, uh, you've been walking with us on this journey. Thank you, Hayes. Uh, with the Israelites as they have returned from exile and how the Lord has done those very three those three things in them we're going to see what the fruit of that is today as we round all of that out Nehemiah chapter 8 starting in verse 1 is where we'll be uh, in just a moment uh, while you're turning there, I would uh, love to ask you a question. I wonder how many of you are concert people. We got concert people in the room. Anybody? Yes, yes, concert people. More than first service, which is good. The rest of you, go to more concerts. It's fun, I promise. Listen, I, it's one of the things I miss most about the whole pandemic thing uh, is just being able to go to a concert. You can find a, a band that you love, an artist that you love, and you don't just get to hear them, but you get to be in the same room with them. I even like being down with the crazies. Man, put me up front. Listen, I want to be up there. I want to hear it. You've got this wall of sound. You've got the light show going on. It is an epic experience to kind of be in the room, to be in that moment. It's exhilarating to kind of be at one of those concerts and to kind of be a part of the experience. Even if you're not way up front, you can say, man, they're right there, man. I'm I'm sharing an experience in real time. This is awesome. But I have watched something weird happen over the past 10 years or so in that I think more and more people do not know what to do at a concert. Have you noticed this? There's some people who do not know how to concert well. Uh, because sometimes when they go to a concert, they just go to a concert and they just stand there. You ever notice that? They're just going there. It's like, I'm like, bro, you can do that at home for a lot cheaper. You really can. If all you wanted to do was to hear the music and to stand there, you can do this in your car. You don't actually need to come here and to be in the room. You're taking up space from somebody who wanted to be here. Why didn't you let them do that? Even more so, people come in and they just want to record the whole thing on their phone. They come in, they lift up, and they just got the phone up the whole time. Got the phone up. I can't see. Why? Your phone's in the way. You got your phone up there. I'm like, why? Why would you do this? It's like, I got to record. I got to record everything. I got to have it. Why? You are missing the moment because you're trying to watch the real thing through your tiny little screen. Now, look, I have been guilty of wanting to record a clip or two of concerts before. But here's the thing. Do you know how many times I go back and watch those clips? Never. No one does. All these people, I got to record, I got to record. You'll never watch this again. And even if you do, it's not a great experience. I got to show my friends. What's that going to be like? Did you see that, man? That was awesome. See that? What's the best reaction you're going to get? Wow. That's the best. That's the best reaction you're going to get from a concert on a phone that you saw. You are missing being in the moment and experiencing this thing when I simply try to do this. I even see this in worship. I've been watching this with students. I do a lot of youth events, and they'll have, like, they'll have like a worship band up there, and they'll start worship, and all the kids go rushing down front. You know what they do when they get there? Nothing. They just run up there. <laughs> Why did you come here? Like, do something. Worship. But don't just run up and stand here. It's like, look, something is happening. You have the opportunity to engage, but it seems like we, we're losing that ability to do that to respond in the moment, to to react in the moment, to engage in the moment. 
But when you and I encounter someone incredible, certainly a God who is grand and glorious, a God who is sovereign and good and wise and beautiful, that ought to naturally engender a response. It ought to engender a response. We ought to react when you and I truly behold him. And that's what we're actually going to begin to see in the people of God. Uh, If you've been walking with us all summer, uh, here has been the journey. The people of God rejected God. And after so many decades of warnings, God wiped them out, sent a remnant into exile into Babylon. But God returned them. He said, I still have plans for you. And so it was the Lord who helped them to return. And once he brought them in multiple ways to return, he helped them to rebuild. And we've seen that over the course of this series. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt themselves as a culture. And then last week, we saw them rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so now we're back to a fully functional city, a fully functional temple. They have returned and they have rebuilt, but the most important thing was that last word, it was meant for them to be renewed. The goal is not simply to put people in a place or to build a set of buildings. The goal is that they would become the people of God. And for that, they needed spiritual renewal. And so as we come to the end of this whole series and the end of this chapter in their history, the question is, have they changed? Has there been a change in them? Have they become more like the Lord? And that is what we see. As you round out these last four chapters, and we're going to cover a lot of ground today, we are going to see a people at worship. We are going to see a people whose heart has been renewed for the Lord. And that is something I hope that we see in ourselves because we need the Lord to renew us. We need him to to help us to become who he wants us to be. But as we do that, that actually engenders even more renewal. As we worship, we see who he is and what he's done, we worship him. But that actually leads into more renewal and more worship and it carries us deeper into the heart of God. And so this morning, we're going to look at three ways that they did that, three ways that the people responded in worship, and then we're actually going to have a chance today to practice that. We're actually going to do this in the room today in the very same ways that they did. So three things we see with the Israelites at worship, they read the word, they confess their sins, and then they give praise and thanksgiving. Three ways that we can respond to the Lord in worship, that is the reading of the word, confession of sins. And then in praise and thanksgiving. And there's advantages to all three of those. And so let's start with the first one right here uh, with the reading of the word in Nehemiah chapter 8. It is about four or five days since they have completed the building of the walls. So you remember last week we talked about this two-month endeavor where they, they went through this crazy experience, but they built the walls. It's just a few days after that. And look at verse 1 and listen to what it says. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And they read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose." So everybody is going to gather together to hear the word of the Lord. But I want you to notice where the initiative lies in this passage. Because it's not Ezra 
who is calling the people to hear the word of the Lord. It is the people who are demanding to hear the word of the Lord. Did you notice that? They tell Ezra, Ezra, bring us the word of the Lord. Ezra, we want to hear the word of the Lord. Ezra, go get that law and read us what God says to us. We're even going to make you a wooden platform. Did you catch that? Typically, when a crowd goes to get wood to build you something, it's a gallows. That's what crowds do with wood. Instead, these guys say, no, 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 no. we're going to go and we're going to build for you, Ezra, a platform. That word in Hebrew literally means a tower. And what they are probably trying to say there is a pulpit. There's no word in Hebrew for pulpit. But that's what they were building. They said, listen, you, we, we want everybody to hear. And so we're going to elevate you just a little bit above all of the people so you can read out the word of God to us. And all the priests and the Levites would join in and helping everybody understand the word of the Lord. They are hungry for it. They are hungry to hear the words of God. How hungry? Well, it says here that they're going to do this for six hours. Do you notice that? It said from midday or from the early in the morning until midday. Early light is 6 a.m. Midday would be noon. And so for six hours, they're saying, no, 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 Ezra, go get that thing. We built it special. Come read the word for us. And we're going to stand for six hours and hear the word of the Lord. They are desirous. They are initiating. They have a hunger to hear the word. Why? Because they have figured out that they need the word of God more than they need anything else. They need the word of the Lord more than they need the words of the culture. They need the word of the Lord more than they need the words of philosophy. Maybe they're beginning to learn what Jesus tried to remind everybody of. That man does not live on bread alone, but man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And I wonder, I wonder if we've really learned that as a people that you and I need the word of the Lord more than we need constant news updates. We need the word of the Lord more than we need social media feeds. We need the word of the Lord more than we need a string of text messages. Good or bad as these may be, we need the word of the Lord more because of the wisdom and the guidance and the truth that God gives us through his word. It begs the question, are we hungry for it? Are we hungry for the word? Now look, I don't mean that question to shame you because we all have kind of ups and downs in our spiritual appetites. That happens to me just as much as it happens to you. But if you and I don't have an appetite for the word at all, we do not desire the word. We don't look to the truths of the word. We don't value the word that God gives to us. We need to be asking ourselves why. The people had rejected the word of the God and now they knew where that led. And so now they find themselves saying, no, I have a hunger for the word. I want this in my life. This is why we read the word. We share the word. We encourage us all to be constantly in the word. But then look what happens down in verse 9. So chapter 8, verse 9, listen to what happens here. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, this is interesting. They're, they're going to step right into a feast day. Uh, and this is actually New Year's Day for the Israelites. They say, wait a minute, Adam, how can it be New Year's Day if it's the first day of the seventh month? A little bit weird. Uh, there's actually kind of two calendars going on at the same time in Israel. You've got the civil calendar and then the agricultural calendar. And on the agricultural calendar, kind of harvest begins the new year. And so this is kind of like the agricultural new year. So there's this, this feast day that they celebrate. It's a New Year's Day. And so it's a, a holy day to the Lord. And contrary to what you might expect, as the people hear the word of the Lord, they, they're convicted and they begin to weep. And the priest, instead of kind of egging that on and leaning into it, say, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't weep just yet. Don't weep because today is a day of joy. Today is a day of celebration. It's not a day of fasting. It's a day of feasting. And so they celebrate. Why? Well, look at verse 10. A phrase that you've probably heard before very often. This is because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We're going to need to get to confession. We're going to get there very shortly. But before we get there, we have to start with joy. When we read the word, it's natural for us to see the disconnect, to see the disparity between us and the standard that God lays out. But we don't start with conviction. We start with joy. Genesis does not start with death. It starts with life. Then death happens and then there's resurrection. But guess what? It starts with life. The, the, the word of the Lord ought to bring joy. In fact, when we get to Christmas and the angel comes and announces this news, it says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. He doesn't say, hey, listen, you know about your sins. He says, hey, there's good news of great joy. Furthermore, Jesus will say this says, right before the crucifixion, John chapter 15, verse 11. Notice what he says. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's about to walk into the garden of Gethsemane, but he says, listen, when I speak these words to you, it ought to bring joy to your soul. He is speaking scripture. He is speaking the gospel of life. And when we hear that word, it ought to bring joy in our lives. Why? Because it's solid, it's stable. It tells us about the love and the grace of God. It tells us about the security we can have in him. It tells us about the glory and the grandeur of God. And these are things that come through the word that you cannot get anywhere else. There is none of that stability in our own opinions or thoughts, or the ramblings of everybody in our culture. You don't get that there. But when you and I read the word, we can find that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We need that more than we know. I needed that this week. Yesterday was not my favorite day. I did two funerals back to back. We buried a brother of ours here in this congregation, and then I buried a longtime friend. It's been tough just to walk through that. And some of you have been through funerals this summer and losses this summer. And in the midst of all that grief and that chaos, there's still a little bit of joy. Do you know why? Because both of those brothers boldly and consistently proclaimed that Jesus Christ was their Savior, and I know exactly where they are today. I have a hope that is undimmed because of where they put their faith. And do you know how I know that? 
Because of the word of Jesus Christ. Because he told us. Because he promised us. And he does not break his promises. Which means that even in the chaos of this life and even in the pain of this life, there can be a a joy in the midst of it. Those two things can coexist. There's a solidity, a security that comes from the word of God. The joy of the Lord is our strength and you just don't get that everywhere else. Which is why we need to hunger for the word. Which is why we should center on the word because it gives us joy. But then notice what he says here at the end of the chapter in verses 17 and 18. So chapter 8 now, uh, verses 17 and 18, they finish out with a celebration. Verse 17, it says, And all the assembly and those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was a very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. All right, so they have this feast day, and then they're going to have a celebration. This is going to be the Feast of Booths. This is one of the annual uh, festivals in the land of Israel. And what they would do is is they would go and they would uh, live for a week in makeshift kind of tents, booths, tabernacles. They would, they would make little shelters that they would live in outside for a week. Now what had happened over the centuries was this. They, they had kind of celebrated this from time to time, but it had turned into a fall festival. We just said this was during autumn, and so what had happened was it just became kind of a celebration of the harvest, an in-gathering. People just kind of celebrated that the, the food had now come in, but that's not what it was really about. The original intent of this whole celebration is that they were hearkening back to the wilderness, that when God had set them free from Israel, when they were homeless, they lived in the wilderness and in these makeshift tabernacles, but the God provided for them all the way through. Their heavenly father had followed them and helped them all the way through their wilderness wanderings. Now don't forget where we are. Just a few weeks ago, they had completed the walls. They had spent months working on these walls. They now live in in this wonderful walled city. They have more security than they ever had before. And they're going to immediately go outside and celebrate the Feast of Booths? They'd be like moving into your dream home and getting all the moving vans unpacked and getting all the furniture in your brand new dream home and going and camping in the backyard for a week. Why would you do that? Like, I just got the dream home. We just moved in. We did all that work to move in. Why would I go camping in the backyard? It's a reminder that the security for them doesn't come in the walls. The security for them comes in the God who gave them the walls. It's a reminder to them that, listen, the walls are great and all, but we're not going to now say, great, God, thanks. Now that you've returned us and rebuilt us, we got it from here. They're like, no, 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 you gave us these things, and we will remind ourselves that when we were homeless, you provided for us every step of the way. Our security comes in you, not in the things that we have. And did you notice also they, they read the word every day? Every day they read the word. Every day they followed after the Lord, and it brought great joy to them. And so we start with the word, the reading of the word, and that brings joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. But then secondly, what they do is they do move into confession. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Just the next couple of verses, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. 
It says, Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another a quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Let's stop right here. All right, so in the beginning, we've gotten this first week or so after the building of the walls. Now a couple weeks has gone by, and they come to a different festival, and they say, we need to confess our sins. You see, the reading of the word had begun that, that, that process when they initially read it, but that conviction has set in even more over the weeks to come. And, and so as they come before the Lord now, they come in a posture of confession, If you read the rest of chapter 9, you will read it as a long and detailed description of the many failures of the people of Israel. They're not going to sugarcoat it. They're not going to pretend they were greater than they are. They're going to lay out in detail all the different ways that their people has failed their God. And so they will come to confess individual sins and they will come to confess their corporate sins before the Lord. And please note, this is not play acting. Look at verse 1. It says they come with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So they're fasting. They're saying, no pleasure for me. Instead, I'm going to abstain as an act before the Lord. And then after that, I'm going to put on sackcloth. This is very uncomfortable black cloth. It's a sign of mourning. And then I'm going to put earth on my head. It was almost like I want to be buried. I feel like I'm already buried. It was a sign with that, that dust upon their heads of the mourning that they were in. They were feeling this. They came before the Lord and said, if I'm going to worship the Lord, then I need to confess my sins. And this must be A consistent action on our part. We need to be constantly confessing our sins before the Lord. Now, that might not be a huge part of your faith tradition growing up. It just might not be a thing that you're really used to. And a lot of people, they kind of get themselves in a twist uh, over this. When people say, hey, you need to confess your sins before the Lord, we come up with a lot of excuses. People will just say, well, I've already been forgiven all my sins, so why would I need to confess them again? Jesus has already died for those. Furthermore, he knows. He knows everything. He already knows what I've done. So why would I tell him something that he already knows? I don't have to do that. Furthermore, that sounds kind of Catholic, doesn't it? It sounds like penance. And I don't, we're not Catholic, so I don't have to do that kind of thing. I'm saved by grace through faith, and so I'm good, right? And, and all of those excuses are a complete misunderstanding of confession. Confession is not about gaining salvation or maintaining my salvation. Confession is about a restoration of relationship. We need constant confession to maintain a strong and rich relationship with the Lord. All the married folk in the room will understand this intuitively, will you not? Because if you're married, sooner or later, you're going to fight with your spouse. People say, we never fight. I don't believe you. Sooner or later, there's going to be a fight. We're all sinners, right? And when you do, what happens? When you have a fight with your spouse, the marriage is not over. You're still married, but it ain't okay in the house, is it? It's a little bit frosty for a little while, right? You get that thing where you kind of like avoid each other a little bit. Hi, hi. You know, you just kind of, you kind of do that thing where you don't, you don't talk as freely as you normally do. It's not fun. I mean, look, you're still married, but the relationship is not as rich as it usually is. And how do you fix that? Somebody's got to fess up. 
Somebody's got to say, I'm sorry. Somebody got to say, I'm wrong. You got to talk it out. You got to work it through. And once you do, guess what? You're still married, but now the relationship is so much better. You get to enjoy that relationship more than you were. That's what confession does. Confession doesn't change the nature of your relationship with God. It changes the quality of your relationship with God. You don't lose your salvation when you sin. We're saved by grace, but it absolutely puts tension and strain in the relationship. When I confess, when we fess up, God's not in the wrong. I'm always in the wrong. When I say, I'm sorry, I am wrong, it restores that relationship. Furthermore, I can't grow until I admit that I'm wrong. Until I truly confess from the heart, there can be no growth on my part. Because look, anybody can say I'm sorry and not mean it. Every kid in the room knows how to do that. Do you not? Kids, how many times have you ever said you were sorry to your brother or sister and you did not mean it? Has this ever happened? Anybody? Your parents told you, you say you're sorry. And you go, I'm sorry. Right? And you don't mean it. We didn't even have to teach the kids that. They just do that on their own which just ensures there's going to be another fight later on, right? Because <laughs> they didn't mean it. Look, and we do that as adults. You say, God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me of all my sins. You realize that doesn't do anything, right? God, forgive me of my sins. Well, he already did, and your relationship didn't change. You know why? Because we don't mean it. How am I going to grow when I recognize, God, I'm wrong? God, I'm wrong, and I'm broken, and I need help. When I admit, when I confess my sin, then I can actually change through the help of the Lord. I can be cleansed of unrighteousness. I can grow. That can't happen unless there's confession. Let's be honest, that's terrifying. We're terrified to confess our sins. There's a reason why guilty people, when standing before a judge, and that judge looks at them and says, how do you plead? There's a reason why guilty people will plead not guilty because they're terrified they know they're guilty but they do not want to surrender themselves to that judge I don't know what they're going to do I don't don't know what they're going to say I know I'm wrong but I do not want to surrender myself to this judge and so so maybe maybe I can maybe I can beat the rap and maybe I can get the lawyers to do something maybe I can I can get out of this but but I'll take my chances and I'm willing to lie even yet again because I'm scared of what's going to happen if I surrender myself to that judge That's a real legitimate fear, but not for us, because you and I know the judge that we stand before. You and I stand before a righteous judge, and more than that, we stand before a gracious one. I want you to look at this passage. This is right here in the middle of uh, of chapter 9. Luke says in verse 16, you're going to see some underlines here. It says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return them, uh, return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Even for them in the Old Testament, they looked back upon the character of their judge, the character of their God, and said he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in grace and kindness, which gave them confidence to confess. 
When you're in front of a harsh, exacting judge, that might be terrifying. But we stand before a gracious, righteous, merciful judge. And so we have confidence to come before even when we're wrong, even when we're guilty, to stand before the Lord. They had that confidence in Israel. How much more so do we, knowing that Jesus Christ has come? Jesus Christ, the very Son of God who comes not to say, hey, get your act together. Hey, let me show you how it's done. Hey, now you better do it like I did and maybe you can get in. He says, no, let me do what you cannot do. Furthermore, let me die for you. Let me take your very sins. I have paid for your sins, past, present, and future. He's already paid for them. We have been declared justified in the sight of God. And if we're justified, then we can have confidence, boldness to walk into the very throne room of God. Not because we earned it, not because we fixed ourselves, not because we got it right today, but simply because Jesus Christ is perfect, we can walk in and confess, I got it wrong. That thing I said I wasn't going to do, I did it again and again and again. God, I got it wrong again. And you never have to worry about being cast out. You never have to worry about being thrown away. God had every right to abandon them, and he didn't. God knows all of our sins and still forgives us, which gives us the freedom to confess and say, God, I'm wrong. Will you help me? I know I am saved. I know I am safe in you. Therefore, I can confess. God, I got it wrong. Would you cleanse me of all righteousness and change me? to be more like you. There must be confession. And then finally, there needs to be praise and worship. Praise and worship. There's, uh, finally, if you skip forward to chapter 12, you're going to have to turn a couple of different pages there. They're going to have a massive celebration where they're going to dedicate these walls. In Nehemiah 12, 27, they begin this. They're going to have this huge party where they begin to celebrate. And let's just kind of look here at the very first few verses. It says that the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. And from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs and gave thanks. Let me stop right there. Uh, there's a lot of place names here, but let me just kind of tell you kind of what they're going to do. They gather all of Israel kind of at one area of Jerusalem. And then you're going to have Ezra on the one side, Nehemiah on the other, and they're going to split into two choirs and they're all going to walk the walls together on two separate sides. And as they do so, they're going to be singing and making worship. So you've got this group singing to that group and this group singing to that group. And they're, they're singing from these walls that the Lord has raised. But then as they get together, they walk down and find themselves at the temple, the rebuilt temple. The temple is at the center of their life as a nation and they will all celebrate together. And look at the last verse there, verse 43. Uh, and look what he says here when it talks about the tenor of this celebration. It says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Do you think they were joyful? He says either joy or rejoice five times in one verse. 
If you wanted to know what that day was like, it was boisterous. It was loud. It was exciting. The people were there and they were ecstatic as they celebrated what God had done. Again, they're not just celebrating the walls. They gather at the temple because the Lord is the center of their celebration. He is the one who has provided all the things. He has helped them to return. He has rebuilt everything for them. And yes, he has even renewed them in spirit. God has completed the work. And so they will come forward to him in joy. And so this is the mark, these are the marks of our worship. We read the word of God, we drink it in, we allow it to do its work through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we start in the joy of the Lord, but that takes us into confession. And even though it's painful, we, we still have that foundation underneath us. We can be safe as we confess, but then that ultimately leads us back to joy. There's joy, and then there's sorrow, and then there's joy again. Which might sound like a weird juxtaposition, but... Think about what we do as well, where we have Christmas, a time of joy, followed by Lent, which is a time of pain and introspection that is followed by Easter, a time of joy. We do the same thing in our calendar. And these are kind of the ups and downs, the warp and woof of worship. And what God is doing for them and what he's doing for us is that he's inviting us into that. He's inviting us to participate in this experience that we too might be renewed that we too might experience him. And so that's what we're going to do for the rest of our service is that we're going to give you an opportunity to hear the word like we already have, to confess your sins and to celebrate. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on, be making their way back up here and to get prepared. But as they do so, here's the only question that you need to ask in this moment. It's this, so what kind of concert goer are you going to be? Are you going to be the concert goer that just kind of stands there and stares and watches everybody else from a distance or are you going to enter in? Are you going to experience? Are you going to allow the Lord to speak to you and respond in this moment, not later on, in this moment? And, and the first thing that requires is just a willingness on your part. We all don't have to worship the same way. We're not all going to react in the same way. Some of you might stand, you might kneel, you might pray, you might sing. There's all kinds of different responses. But it starts with a willingness. A willingness just to hear the word. Can you hear what God is saying to you today? Not, oh man, they need to hear this. Oh man, that verse is for somebody else. Can you hear what God is saying to you today? Can there be a willingness on your part to respond? It might mean just singing. That might be a step for you. I'm going to sing out loud. That might be a step that you need to take today and say, no, I'm going to participate today. Or maybe you need to come forward and kneel at the altar. Maybe you need to stand or sit or raise your hands or, or just sit and pray and listen. Are we willing to do something here in the moment? Are we willing to open up our hearts and confess before the Lord? I'm not going to ask you to tell me anything. But can we finally get specific before the Lord and confess our sins before him? And say, God, I need help. I need, I need help with this. God, God, this is what I need. Are, are we willing to celebrate with our brothers and sisters when given the opportunity? 
And so that's the journey we're going to go on in the next few minutes. And so let's prepare our hearts with heads bowed, eyes closed. And look, as we prayed at the beginning, we all came in here today with a lot of different stuff. Different places, different pains, different joys, different circumstances. But we come together as the people of God today. We have all been blessed by Him. He loves us. He's called us to be a people together. And in this moment, there's an opportunity for us to together respond to Him. What would that look like for you? Let's be open before Him and walk that path of renewal. So Lord, help us. Speak to us. Lord, we need you today. Maybe just open up our eyes to see you as even grander and more glorious than than we've ever seen before. To see more of your beauty, your sovereignty, your power, your love, your grace. The fact that it's even greater than our sin. And maybe we know our sin better than we ever have today. But help us also see the greatness of your grace even greater than that. Help us to see the glory of your cross that gives us a confident assurance before you that does not need to be shaken by our many failures. God, in the midst of grief and pain and chaos and loss, can you remind us of your sovereignty, your goodness, your power, that you are unchanging, that you're wiser than all of us. And so, Lord, we choose in this moment to hear you and to respond to you. So we bring our hearts before you. Hear us as we worship. In your name we pray, amen.